Yeah, evening all. My name is Ken, and tonight's Bible reading is from Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 to 10. You can find this on page 968 on the Pew Bibles, or you can follow along on the projection. Yeah, so Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah stared into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, ordered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man, man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. We ask that as we sit under your word now, you might use it to grow us in our love and dependence upon you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So responses matter. How we respond to things is an important thing. And so this was never more, more kind of obvious to me. I was never more aware of this than on the uh, 8th of November, 2013. See, on the 8th of November, 2013, I could feel my heart beating in my chest. I could feel the sweat pouring down my face. I could feel the sickness in my stomach as I waited for the response I was about to get. Now, I uh, hear you asking, well, what was the November the 8th, 2013? Well, that was the day that I proposed to Cassie. So that was the day that I asked her to marry me. And so I can assure you, on that day, I was keenly aware of the fact that responses matter. All day I kept kind of checking that I hadn't somehow lost the engagement ring. I kept kind of thinking over and over, rehearsing what I was going to say. I was so set on the response I was going to get that night. And so eventually the long day ended and it was night time and we went out for our date and we went for dinner and that was great. And then I'm sure we had some good conversations there. I don't really remember much of it to be honest. I was um, kind of thinking ahead to when I was going to ask the question, but I'm sure we had good conversations. And so we finished. And I said to Cassie, oh, do you want to get some dessert? Because my plan was to go to the place we had dessert on our second date and pop the question there. But do you know what she said to me? She said, oh, I don't feel like dessert. And I'm like, oh, no, what do I do? Like, my whole, my whole plan's foiled. It was all hinging upon going and getting dessert there. But in the end, I managed to convince her. Well, we went and got dessert. And I must say, it wasn't that hard. It's never difficult to convince someone they need to have dessert. It's always an easy thing to do. So we went to the, have dessert. And while we were there, I gave her this. So this is a, um, a book that I made 
that is a list or a um, kind of timeline of every date that we've been on. I've got a few um, screenshots there for you. It's quite small, so a bit hard to see, but I made a little design, a little picture for everyone, and I kept a list of what dates we went and when we did it. And so just a side note to, um, to young single men here, women like romantic gestures, so, um, so that's, uh, it helps when you get to proposing. But so, yeah, I had the, um, the list in here of every date we'd been on, and then at the, at the end, when she opened up, the last page said, will you marry me? And so I can assure you, while I was sitting there, when she'd opened up that last page and I was waiting for that response, I was keenly aware of the fact that responses matter. And so do you know what her response was? She said to me, have you asked my dad? And I said, of course I've asked your dad. And then she said yes from there and the rest is history. <laughs> But I was keenly aware of the fact that responses matter. And I think we all know this instinctively. I mean, think about it. If you tell someone that you love them, you want them to respond positively. You don't want them to respond in the way that happens to George Costanza in Seinfeld, where he tells a woman that he loves her and she says, oh, we should get something to eat. Like, we don't want them to say that. When we bear our heart to someone and tell them we love them, we want them to respond positively. Responses matter. When we're at work or when we're at school and we hear the fire alarm go off, responses matter. We know if we sit there and we do nothing, thinking it's a fire drill and it's not, then there's going to be a big consequence to it. We could get seriously injured, we could get killed. We know responses matter. When someone comes to us and they bear their soul to us, they tell us all the struggles they're going through, they tell us the hardships they're going through at the moment, we know responses matter. How we respond to that person is important because we can make it a whole lot worse if we don't respond well. We know instinctively that responses matter. And what we see with our passage today, Jonah 3, is it's filled with responses. We see Jonah's response, which is obedience, we see the Ninevites' response, which is repentance. We see God's response, which is mercy. And it forces us to think about our response. And so as we work through Jonah, Jonah 3, what it shows us is we need to respond as well. Just like the people in the story, we need to respond. And the response we make here is vitally important. It's more important than any other response we could possibly any other situation that needs a response we could possibly face in life because how we respond here impacts on our eternal destination. It's a life and death matter, but not just a life and death matter, an eternal life and death, a spiritual life and death matter. And it all hinges upon our response. And so as we work through, we're going to constantly keep thinking, how are we responding? How do we need to respond and so our passage starts off in a familiar way. It starts with Jonah's response. But it, it's Jonah's response to God's call to him. So have a look at verses 1 and 2. This is what 1 and 2 says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. So I don't know if you can cast your mind all the way back about two weeks and remember what the first few, ver first few uh, verses of chapter 1 said. And so I assumed you're like me and you've got a bad memory, so I thought I'd put it up there for you. That's what chapter 1 says, at verses 1 to 2, and that's what chapter 3 says. And it's remarkably similar. In fact, it's almost identical. And so what we're meant to think as we look at God's kind of charge to Jonah here 
We're meant to think back to Jonah chapter 1. And we're meant to remember God's call to Jonah in chapter 1. And we're meant to think, is this, this is a second chance. This is a second chance for Jonah, a chance for him to do this time what he should have done last time. And so now we're meant to think, we're meant to think, how will Jonah respond? Will his response be like last time, where he fled God? Or will his response be better this time? That's what we're wondering. And straight away, our fears are relieved. Have a look at the third verse. This is his response. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. This time he obeys. This time he does what he should have done last time. This time he hears God and he obeys God. His response is obedience. And so off he goes to Nineveh, which is then described in the second half of the third verse. Have a look. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. So this is a huge city, an enormous city, a metropolitan of those days. And so uh, to visit it properly takes three days. Now, it's probably including the outlying kind of settlements and the outlying farms around the city. But either way, this is still a huge city. This is the kind of New York. This is the Tokyo of those times. And so, I don't know if you've ever been to any of those cities. So Melbourne is a great place to live, a wonderful city, but it's dwarfed by the sheer enormity of some of these cities around the world. Cassie and I went to Japan a few years ago, and we visited Tokyo. And one of the things we did while at Tokyo was we went to the palace grounds, or the old palace grounds that's there. And what it is, is it's basically like this big open parkland with some walls and some castles and stuff around. But what I was struck by was this park, this palace is enormous. It's bigger than the Melbourne CBD, and it's just basically a parkland. And it's smack bang in the middle of Tokyo. And so what you do when you're standing inside this parkland, any way you look, you can just see high-rise buildings going the whole way around it. And so here's this park that's the size of Melbourne, and yet it's still surrounded by city buildings as, I, as far as the eye can see. It's an enormous city, and Nineveh was like the equivalent of this, that in these days. It was just this huge city that has huge amounts of people. And so Jonah goes there, and he proclaims God's message. And did you see what his sermon is? Did you see what his message is? Have a look at verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a short message, isn't it? Uh, in the Hebrew, that's only five words. In English, it's eight words. So just for reference, uh, my sermon tonight is about 3,500 words. So um, I'm sure you were maybe wishing that I was only going to give an eight-word sermon, but um, I'm not, so you're stuck with this. But it's amazing, isn't it, that he gives such a short message. We'd expect that he'd give a big, long message. But instead, it's five Hebrew words. Now, of course, uh, this is most likely just a summation, a summary of what he actually said. But the summary of it, at least, is so short. And it's short and it's sharp. Judgment is coming. 40 days, you've got 40 days and judgment will come. And it's the heart of why responses matter. It's at the heart of why the Ninevites' response matters, because judgment's coming. But it's also at the heart of why our response matters. Because while we don't get the exact same warning as the Ninevites in terms of it's not 40 days and then judgment is coming, 
Big picture speaking, we have the same warning. The Bible is filled with the same warning over and over. Judgment is coming for those who are wicked. And it's easy to think, oh, well, that's bad for them, but at least we're good. But this is what the Bible says. This is Romans chapter 3. It says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There's no one who does good, not even one. There's no person who's good, and therefore all people have judgment coming. Now, sure, it might not be judgment in 40 days in the same way as the Ninevites, but we still all have judgment coming. And so we need to respond. We need to respond to that message of warning. It's a matter of life and death. And so then we're left wondering, well, if we need to respond, if we need to respond like the Ninevites do then what is their response? How do they respond to this five-word warning of judgment? Well, we're kind of, we find out straight away, don't we? Jonah goes in and he preaches and they respond with repentance. They hear this message and they repent. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the lowest, put on sackcloth. They hear and they believe. They realize that God is telling the truth And so they do this thing, they fast and they put on sackcloth. And what these are meant to be is they're meant to be kind of outward signs of discomfort that show the inner mourning that's going on. And so we all kind of know what it's like to to miss a meal. You miss one meal and your tummy starts kind of grumbling a bit. Miss a second meal and starts getting louder and louder and more painful. Miss a whole day and it's almost unbearable. We know the kind of uncomfortableness of fasting, of not eating, And then, um, in case you're not aware what sackcloth is, so this is sackcloth. It's that kind of hempy, prickly, uncomfortable material. And so could you imagine wearing a top? Could you imagine pants made of that? It would be horrendously uncomfortable. You get itchy all over the place. It would be extremely unpleasant. And so both of these things are out of visual signs of sadness, out of visual signs of repentance and mourning. They hear this charge that judgment is coming because of their wickedness. And so they repent. They say, we need to change. They show their sadness. Even the king responds with repentance. Did you see what it says about him? Have a look at verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is incredible. The absolute power of the Ninevites. The king humbles himself. He walks down off his throne and he sits in dust. He takes off his clothes of fine silk and clothes himself instead in itchy, irritating sackcloth. It's a powerful visual symbol of humility, of humbling himself. It would be like if the Prime Minister came out of Kirribilli House and lived in a tent, or if the Queen came out of Buckingham Palace and lived under a bridge. It's this powerful visual symbol of the leader of these people humbling himself in repentance. And then he also gives this kind of decree to all of the people. And do you see what he says to them? Everyone, from the, down to the lowest person, should humble themselves. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, 
Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. See, this response is to be citywide, from the highest noble to the lowest labourer, from the most powerful king to the most lowly animal, from one side of the city to the other. All people, everyone, is to fast and put on sackcloth and mourn. They're to mourn their sin, repent their sin and turn away from their sin. They're to call urgently on God. Do you see that? They're to call urgently on God, begging God for mercy, falling on God's mercy for salvation. And in particular, do you see what they're to give up? They're to give up their evil ways and their violence. Now, to us, that sounds all right. We say, of course you should give up your violence and your evil ways. Why wouldn't you want to give up your violence and evil ways? But what we've got to remember is that culturally speaking, this was just part of their life. This was how they functioned. They were just, as weird as it might sound to us, they were just a violent people. Violence was just part of their blood. So it would be a bit like saying to a Melbourneian, you need to give up your love for coffee and your love for good food. Or saying to an Australian, you need to give up your love for sport. These are just things that are intrinsic to our culture. It's just, we don't even think about it, we just do it. And as weird as it sounds for them, this is what it was. Violence and evil was just part of their blood. It was just how they functioned. And yet, repentance calls them to give it up. Repentance calls them to turn away from that, to turn away from their wickedness and their evil. They realise this is what they need to do. They're to give it up and urgently call on God's mercy. And if they do, then there's hope. They have the hope that God will forgive them. Have a look at verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They have this hope. They have this hope that if they respond with repentance, God will spare them. God will have mercy on them. It's a hope built on this repentance. And so what you get throughout verses 8 to 10 is the Hebrew word for repentance, jeshub, appears four times, four times in just these couple of verses. And so what it shows us is repentance is key. Turning away from their wickedness, turning towards God is the key. Repentance is the only response that can help. And it's the same for us. Repentance is our only response that can help. See, without it, destruction is coming. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one good enough to be spared from judgment. Our only hope is to act like the Ninevites, to respond like the Ninevites, to turn to God and fall on his mercy, hoping he'll have compassion on us and spare us. And so then, ultimately, it all comes down to God's response. It all comes down to what God's response is. And did you see what it was? Have a look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God sees their repentance and he responds with mercy. He responds with compassion. He spares them. He decides not to judge them in the way they deserve. And what it does is it shows us God's mercy because it's undoubtable that these guys deserve judgment. These are people who tortured people. These are people who killed mothers and babies. These are people who delighted in causing harm and pain to others. It is undeniable that these people deserved judgment. Even taking into account their repentance, it doesn't undo all the pain and the sadness they've caused. It doesn't undo all the harm and difficulty. They deserved judgment. 
And yet what we see with God's response is that God is a God of mercy. God is a God who delights in responding with mercy. God is a God who delights in sparing people from their judgment. Now, of course, we know it's true that we've got to make sure we don't think that this is all that's true about God because there's plenty more to God than the fact that he's merciful. God is a just God as well. God will punish those who persist in wickedness. So there's all sorts of other things we need to add in as well, but it's important that we see that God is a God of mercy. God is a God who delights in responding with mercy. God is a God who will respond with mercy to those who respond in repentance. And he'll respond to us if we respond in repent- with mercy, if we respond in repentance as well. But see, this is where we differ from the Ninevites, because what the Ninevites had was hope. The Ninevites had hope of God's mercy. They repented, they turned from their evil ways, and they cast themselves on God's feet in the hope that he would spare them. But for us, we have something far greater than the hope of mercy. We have the assurance of mercy. We have the assurance that God will respond in mercy. And we know that because of Jesus, because he sent, God sent his son down for us to take our punishment for us, so that when we respond with repentance... We have absolute certainty that God will respond with mercy. And so we have something far greater than what the Ninevites have. We're in a far better position than they're in because we can be assured that God is a God of mercy. And so then we have to reflect what is our response? What is our response? I think the answer to that largely hinges on our view of sin. The answer to that largely hinges on what we think about sin. See, we live in a culture that doesn't value sin, doesn't think sin's a big deal, it doesn't think sin's important. In fact, I suspect if you asked lots of people, your co-workers, your classmates, your friends, your family, I suspect lots of them wouldn't even be able to define sin and wouldn't even think that sin is a real thing. They would think it doesn't exist. So we live in a culture that knows well how to sin but doesn't know what sin is. And I suspect what happens is we get influenced by that. We get influenced by that, and so we stop thinking that sin's a big deal. We kind of, we're dismissive of sin, and we say, oh, it's not such a big deal. We kind of feel apathy and indifference towards it. Oh, it doesn't matter if I sin, because I'm forgiven. And now, in one sense, that's true. We are forgiven, and we do have assurance of salvation. And so, in one sense, we shouldn't be burdened and weighed down by sin, And yet still, we should be grieved by sin because sin causes our loving saviour great harm. It causes God great sadness when we sin. And so sin is a big deal. Our response to sin matters. And our response to sin matters because what sin does is makes God's mercy all the much, or shine all the much brighter. And so it's like that kind of analogy, I don't know if you've heard it before, of um, buying diamonds. So when you go diamond shopping, they take out the diamond and they put it on a black cloth. They don't put it on the glass counter. They don't put it on a white cloth. They put it on a black cloth. And they do that because it contrasts. The black of the cloth behind it makes the diamond shine so much brighter. It contrasts against it. In one sense, that's what it's like with sin and God's mercy. When we're aware of how sinful we are, when we're aware of how great a big, what a big deal sin is, then it makes God's mercy shine so much brighter. It makes us realise just how good God is and just how good what, it, God has, what 
it is that God has done for us is. When we respond to sin properly, when we realize what sin is, when we see the horror of sin, then it's actually a good thing because it makes God's mercy shine so much more. And this is what the, um, the kind of author of one of the most famous hymns, Amazing Grace, was getting at. So I don't know if you've heard of John Newton before, so a famous uh, Christian author or uh, hymn composer. And he composed that famous song, Amazing Grace. And we're going to sing it in a minute. But for John Newton, he'd gone through life and he'd experienced the depth of humanity. So he kind of grew up and he was sailed on slaver ships. He even captained a slaver ship. He was on ships that would capture people, that would take them away from home, away from family, away from loved ones, all the way over the other side of the world and sell them. He'd seen what people would do to each other. He'd seen the depth of sin, what it would cause others to do to people and what it would cause himself to do to others. He'd seen the way that people would disregard the humanity of others will cause harm to others. He'd seen the absolute depth that humans are capable of. And it grieved him. And it caused him, in one sense, to see the light that shines in God's mercy. And that's what he's getting at with Amazing Grace. That's why he can say Amazing Grace. It's a song that's dedicated to the wonderful mercy of God, the wonderful saving grace of God. And it contrasts with his experience of how sinful humans are. And that meant that towards the end of his life, he was able to say this. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Isn't that a wonderful mindset to have? We are great sinners, but God is a merciful God. God is great in mercy. And so that's what sin does. It helps us see the wonder of God's mercy. See, responses matter. In Jonah 3, we see different responses. We see Jonah's response, which is obedience. We see the Ninevites' response, which is repentance. And we see God's response, which is mercy. And so we have to think, what then is our response? I'm going to pray and ask that we'd respond well. Please pray with me.